China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Darren Byler, an assistant professor at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Today we'll be discussing two of his recent books, Terror Capitalism, Uyghur Dispossession and Masculinity in a Chinese City, and In the Camps, China's High-Tech Penal Colony. Darren, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I wanted to first ask about your research background and research interests. How, how did you come to be focused on these issues of stateless populations and specifically your, your fantastic work on what's going on in Xinjiang? Well, I first went to Xinjiang in 2003 or so as a naive undergraduate student from Ohio. And I was studying photojournalism at the time, taking pictures of streetscapes. And Xinjiang has a vernacular landscape in, in the south and in Kashgar and Hotan that really captured my attention. And so when I went back to the U.S., I started to really dig into the history and culture of, of Northwest China, try to understand who are these people, the Uyghurs, this group of 12 million people. Where do they come from? Where are they going? I could see that there was a lot of development happening already at that point in the 2000s as the Open Up the West campaign was getting underway. And so I thought it would be a, a space that would be really interesting to study. As I went into graduate school, I was working with you know, people that were studying ethnicity in China, studying uh, social movements in China, and they helped steer me to, to think about how what's happening in Xinjiang comes out of a broader historical and national context in China and situated within a global economy as well. So you know, that's how I landed and doing the kind of work that I do in Xinjiang. Can you tell us a bit about the experience of doing field work on this? Doing such, you know, especially in something relating to sensitive topics has been difficult in China for a while, but but Xinjiang is in the center of the bullseye. For for the, the work you did on uh, terror capitalism, for example, you know, what was the time period over which you were doing field work? And can you just give us, what is a, a kind of a, tactile sense of what it's like to be doing fieldwork in Xinjiang on some of these issues, especially once they become more acute security issues. Well, I started the work in 2011, going to the region to, to really learn languages, Uyghur and Chinese, and um, was affiliated with a university in the, the capital, Urumqi. This was after large-scale violence in the same city, um, and so there was already a big police presence. But still at that time, there was a possibility for, for foreigners to get affiliation at, at universities um, as students. And so that you know got me a, a way in and allowed me to build some relationships with people that were living there in the city. I went back in 2014 and 15 to, to do the bulk of my fieldwork. Um, I could build on those relationships that I built previous. My fieldwork was conditioned by the political circumstances. I could really only live in the city. Uh, if I wanted to travel outside, it would be monitored pretty closely. I couldn't live in villages. I couldn't go um, stay in people's homes. So it meant that a lot of my fieldwork happened in public, in parks, in cafes, following migrants who are coming from rural southern Xinjiang, Uyghur migrants, to the city, trying to find work. Many of them underemployed with not a lot to do on their, with their time and, and really happy to speak to me about their their hopes and dreams, what they were, what they were up to in the city, and, and their experience of policing, experience of of the political system, and so that really became the the center of what I focused on. I, I tried to be really careful in how I did that research, and in the way I presented it, I was interested in, in development. I was interested in how Urumqi, the capital, was becoming a global city, which were 
topics that were approved by local authorities as okay things to study. And I was interested in those things, but I was interested also in who's left out of that development. How do people uh, who are from that region feel um, dispossessed, feel um, experience their way of life kind of slipping away. And that's that's how they thought about it. And because I could speak both languages, I could also sort of code switch and, and sort of, you know, speak to the, in a way that would, I think, make sense to the people that I was in, encountering, you know, whether they're government officials or, you know, Uyghur migrants. How is the field now ad- adapting to some of the restrictions that are being placed? And this, of course, is a broader concern for anyone doing field work in China, no matter what your topic. We, COVID has, of course, not helped, but also the tightening of the security atmosphere in China. There's a lot of great work being done on Xinjiang that's looking at with primary source documents. And of course, you've been doing a lot with this procurement documents. We've got satellite imagery, but you, you're, a lot of your work is based on qualitative, qualitative work. So how is the field or how are you personally going to adapt if we're projecting that traveling to Xinjiang to do this work in the foreseeable future is is going to be difficult, what other options do you have? Well, so I went to Xinjiang for the last time in 2018, which was still before I'd published any of these books, and so I was, uh, you know, not a fully known quantity yet. A uh, black hand. You were not a formal black hand yet. <laughs> but at that point, the surveillance system was really intense. There was checkpoints every two, three hundred meters, um, face recognition cameras in high traffic areas. People were having their faces scanned multiple times a day. You know, I was experiencing that as well as I was there. Um, and it meant I couldn't interview the people um, that I had known from my previous research. Some of them were missing, had been taken to camps. Um, I'd known that from contacts I, I had that uh, could you know, convey that information to me. Um, and so it became much more observational. I was like looking at these checkpoints, observing how the system works, what companies are involved in building this system, how is it operationalized by the grassroots uh, political actors, the, the local police and, and uh, government officials. Um, but really, you know, I couldn't ask many questions. And so it was more observational. And then in 2020, I went to Kazakhstan talking to people who had just come across the border in the months, years before who could tell me a lot about what they had observed 2018, 2019. Some of them had been in detention, could talk about what had happened in their detention. These are mostly Kazakh people who, because of their status as Kazakhstani green card holders, or in some cases, citizens of Kazakhstan, were able to be released from China and and come across the border. And so they could give me more granular qualitative data about what I had observed when I'd been there on the ground. Um, And they also helped me corroborate details that I was seeing in these internal police documents documents, you know, hundreds of thousands of internal police reports that The Intercept had received and I've been working with in 2020 already. And so, you know, tying those things together, um, the internal police documents, the open source public documents coming from the state and also from industry, um, and then the qualitative data, the satellite imagery helps too. You know, all of those things together help us to get a pretty full picture of what's going on, even as we can't, you know, observe directly by going into the space. Obviously, the public attention that has come on Beijing's systematic campaign of repression in, in Xinjiang is is an old story, but it seems like the period around 2016, 2017 saw a ramp up in activity. And of course, subsequent to that, much more scrutiny that was coming 
I think, really urged by scholars like yourself who are making this impossible to ignore uh, from a government in the United States or Germany or Canada. I wanted to ask what, as an observer of the functional day-to-day realities in Xinjiang, what has changed and what has remained the same in Beijing's approach to governance in Xinjiang since, let's say, 2017 through today? Has any of the external public pressure or scrutiny forced a shift in approach? Have any domestic dynamics forced a a shift in approach? And I guess, um, and I don't mean this without normative implications, but has Beijing learned anything in its approach to governance for good or for ill that has affected the -the on-the-ground realities? Well, this is a really massive campaign, a very intensive campaign that's difficult to hide for all of the reasons I just mentioned, all the different forms of evidence that we're able to um, have access to. And so I suppose what the state has learned the most from is how to sort of cut off those points of access to information, how to manage the, the narrative. One of the things that we've seen is that those that were initially detained in 2017, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, in many cases have now become prisoners with formal sentences. The state prosecutor's office says that over 560, 70,000 people have been prosecuted over this period of time. Um, and we know that prosecution rates match very closely with sentencing. 99% of those prosecuted are sentenced in China. So we know that many people are in prison. So there's a kind of uh, formalization of internment, um, a sort of legalization, a, u- a, a sort of you know rule through law or using law, a sort of lawfare approach to um, targeting a, a large group of people and saying these people really are criminals. They're not simply detaining they're now become formal prisoners. Another thing that's happened is many people have been sent from the camps into factories that are associated with the camps. Sometimes the camps have actually become factories themselves. And so that's a, a, another way that the, the state is saying, no, this is an industrial park. It's not a camp. It's not a, a training center. And then there's others that have actually been released into kind of community detention as well. The state says everyone has graduated, um, that there's nothing to see, that you know this is something that happened in the past and was necessary, but now we're moving on. We know that there's still hundreds of thousands of people missing. Um, and so there's a, a discrepancy in between what the state says has happened and, and what is actually reality on the ground. In my view, some of this response, or at least the acceleration of this response, is a response to international pressure. I think the state was, Chinese state was surprised that there was so much international condemnation around these detention camps. I think they thought, you know, no one's going to pay attention. You know, it really has been, you know, one of the, I think, largest blows probably to China's efforts to sort of exert soft power in the world and and sort of portray itself as a, a future leader of the world. Also, in this time period we were just talking about, there's been a swap out in leadership in Xinjiang and the Communist Party. We saw Chen Chuanguo, who seemed to be one of the key architects of this modern phase of national security repression. Now we've got someone, Ma Xingrei, who has taken over. I know it's relatively early into his tenure as party secretary, but do you see any uh, important or substantive shifts in approach or, or continuities such that we can have some early conclusions about how Ma governs? I think we can see both shifts in approach and continuities. Ma Xinrei is coming from Guangzhou or Guangdong province and is you know, bringing with him a sort of developmentalist approach. Um, they're talking now about sort of a revving up of economic development and, and really, uh, you know, new forms of investment in economic development, um, a sort of revitalization of the, the Belt and Road discourse that really was the, the center of development in Xinjiang prior to the security campaign. And, you know, that includes special economic zones in Kashgar 
and um, at Korgas on the border with Kazakhstan. Um, and so I think it's now a shift towards development, less of a focus on security as sort of the, the main thrust of, of what they want to do. At the same time, though, they talk about how they need to remain vigilant in counterterrorism, in de-extremification. They're going to continue to monitor people's speech, uh, you know, what people are, are doing online. That's something that they've mentioned since Ma Xingrei has arrived as a, a continued focus of, of sort of monitoring and controlling uh, movement and behavior. I think they really want to make sure that the re-education program which is about sort of bringing Uyghurs into the mainstream economy and into the mainstream Chinese society, that that, that continues, that, you know, the, the past five years are not, you know, sort of simply a, a wasted opportunity, but instead you know, result in, in an actual transformation of the Uyghurs. This is very speculative. I know we don't know what Xi Jinping thinks about anything. We only know what he says on paper. But do you read anything into someone like Ma Xingrei, a more developmentalist technocrat, taking over Xinjiang as being any broader signal about the approach that Beijing is looking to take towards Xinjiang in the future? Or, or is this more just what is often the case, just a, a matter of internal personnel swapping and doesn't necessarily signal a, a massive structural shift? It's hard to say for sure. I mean, it does roughly follow a kind of five-year tenure, which is fairly normal in the Xinjiang case and in, I think in, in general in, in China. Um, where you know, governors or party leaders are, are swapped out. It does, I think, also lend itself, though, to this uh, sort of shift in desecuritizing or in, in refocusing attention towards development, um, that they want to bring in a new leader to do that. It does feel, to a certain extent, that, that Tian Chuanguo is being scapegoated as sort of the cause of um, sort of the overreach of what's happened, although I, don't, I wouldn't say that Xi Jinping is admitting that. He and the administration have never admitted that they've done anything wrong in northwest China. But I think you, know, you could read between the lines and understand that that's sort of what they're saying, um, that they're, they're moving on and they don't want to deal with the fallout of, of what they've done. I wanted to ask now about one of the concepts that you talk about in the book, Terror Capitalism, which I, I promise I will ask what terror capitalism is in a minute, but I just wanted to linger on the political system for, for a moment. One of the things when I was reading the book and one of the terrifying elements of this is the subjectivity at work if you're if you're a Uyghur in Xinjiang, of not knowing where the line is necessarily between running afoul or not of the authorities. And this is the problem with, with one of the many problems of dictatorship is you can be caught up because someone says something, says something to security officials. It could be something that you're something because of a neighbor and then you're implicated and it just puts you in this permanent sense of insecurity. I was interested in what we know about or what we can guess about how security actors formal in the system are making some of these really life-altering decisions about what is nor quote-unquote normal activity where the resident can pass by and what is quote-unquote abnormal activity and where the what that blurriness in those delineations looks like. I know it's not a particularly acute, clear question that I'm asking, but I'm trying to get a sense of to what extent are security actors operating with wide degrees of subjectivity and fuzziness and therefore extreme power by being able to wield judgment. I'm sure wrapped up in some formalistic language that on paper makes it look like there's clear criterion, but as is always the case, it comes down to human agency so many times. Uh, what, any thoughts on this or, or what do we know about what this looks like? What's the kind of lived experience on the ground? 
Well, there's two primary actors in, uh, you know, in terms of an in- institutional presence at the grassroots level. That's the Public Security Bureau and the Civil Affairs Ministry, um, which at the neighborhood level is often thought of as or called the, the Shachu, which is the sort of community center. And the Civil Affairs Ministry folks are in charge of monitoring and evaluating those that live within their jurisdiction uh, making sure that they have HUCO, which is a household registration, to live in the city in the space that they're in or that they're registered in general. And as the campaign was ramped up, they were the ones that made a lot of the decisions about who should be sent to the camp. They actually had a presence in many of the camps where they were observing the people that came from their own neighborhoods to make sure that they were being re-educated. So you know, there's a, a, they were tasked with that kind of work. And the Public Security Bureau sort of is the enforcement behind what the Shachu says. They're the ones that carry the guns. And then on top of that, there's the police assistants who were hired to work in the People's Convenience Police Stations, which were built every several hundred meters. They're doing a lot of the checkpoint monitoring. They're monitoring the cameras, monitoring the screens. They're scanning people's phones, getting diagnoses of untrustworthiness from those that they're scanning. Um, and that means then that they're, they're then sent to the Shachu, where the Shachu makes the decision about whether the person should be detained. The Shachu, the Civil Affairs Ministry, was also reconnected with uh, the volunteers who were sent as part of the Aid Xinjiang Project, which is um, this pairing assistance program that brings people from outside of Xinjiang into Xinjiang. They coordinated that effort to send people into the villages and there evaluate people as well. And so really what we have at the end of the day is uh, a technological scanning you know, evaluation system and also a human intelligence system that is non-Uyghur, is non-Muslim, that's evaluating what's normal, what's abnormal in Muslim society and making these really radical decisions about who's a potential terrorist or not based on really faulty information. The algorithms that they're using to assess people, you know, they have some precision to them in terms of like, you know, this person used WhatsApp, this person used a VPN, but it is quite broad at the same time in simply, you know, not understanding the context of why someone would use a VPN or WhatsApp and, and simply assuming the only reason they would do that is because they, you know, want to learn about terrorism. And here I'm still thinking in kind of good faith that this is, you know, them just, you know, following the diagnostics, um, the forms. Um, but we also know that there's a quota system that um, is being implemented in terms of how much intelligence should be gathered. We see this in the internal police documents. And we also know that there's some discussion about, you know, 10 to 20 percent of the people in of Uyghurs and Muslims are extremists. You know, making the numbers match, finding those terrorists, finding those extremists was was really the mandate that these people had. Um, and so, you know, they were kind of manufacturing or producing terrorists, whether or not they existed. So they needed the numbers. So, you know, there's a, a legacy of this sort of approach, use of numbers in Chinese history in past political campaigns. So it's not anomalous in a broad sense, but in the way that it's focused on a particular minority group and on a religious practice, you know, this is a new phenomenon. You may not know the answer to this, but I was, as you were talking, I was just thinking about some of the important reporting that has happened here in the United States about how algorithms can entrench biases and exacerbate inequities happening across multiple different lines. And so there's efforts to try to de-bias a lot of algorithms here, at least there's awareness of the necessity of de-biasing. Do you know, is there any, I'm not trying to map a parallel, but is there any discussion going on in the security world or thinking about the use of algorithms to de-bias these, even on China's own terms? I'm not trying to make a moral equivalent, but just to say, 
Is there a discussion and an awareness that algorithms are not uh, perfect value judgment free machines, but actually can oftentimes reflect biases and therefore be inaccurate? Or as far as we know, is that discussion not occurring? I don't know if it's occurring in this context. I think, you know, there's it, when it comes to AI and bias in China, there's a lot of discussion around it. A lot of the big tech firms, even those working in Xinjiang, have you know an AI ethics board that helps assess their tech and stuff. But mostly they're concerned with consumers, with uh, Chinese populations outside of Xinjiang, not um, with a, a national security threat like the Uyghurs. My sense is that they want to use any means necessary to control Uyghurs. And if that means, you know, a, a lot of innocent people are hurt in the process, maybe they're not happy about it necessarily, but they don't care either. I think they, they feel as though the ends, you know, really justify the means. And so, you know, if, if people are hurt in the process, that's just the cost of doing this. They, you know, they think of it as a war space. And I would imagine the incentive structure runs such that overly restrictive approach is far better than a liberal approach, right? Better to catch four people, three of them innocent, than to let one person go who could potentially be a, a threat, correct? I think that's how they think about it. I think they also think that this in the end is good for these people that are being detained, um, even those that are not that serious of threats, um, because they're, you know, taught to be more compliant and they're directed, at, you know, if they're sent into the, the manufacturing route, um, they're directed into, you know, becoming more productive citizens as workers in factories, as Chinese speakers. So they really do, I think, believe in the re-education sort of forced assimilation aspect of this. When I was there in 2018, I was interviewing some of these uh, Han volunteers that were sent into the villages. And that's what they would say is that we understand this may be really hard for Uyghurs, but in the end, it will be a benefit for them um, that, um, you know, over time, they'll, they'll learn to appreciate sort of a, a tough love kind of approach. Yeah, that feels to me an, an added level of terror on this. It's, it's the tyranny of someone who thinks they're doing something for your own good can often be marginally worse than, than different types of tyranny. The title of one of the books we want to talk about today, quite provocative, eye-catching title of Terror Capitalism. Terror, I can understand. Capitalism, increasingly not a word we often ascribe to China as we hear more talk about the glories of socialism and China's state-run system. What is, what is terror capitalism and, and how does it intersect with what's going on or indeed how is it substantive and core to what's going on in Xinjiang? So I wanted to think about what's happening in Xinjiang, not as an isolated situation in the world, but as something that has resonances with other forms of counterterrorism, of um, a sort of a military industrial complex building. What's happening in Xinjiang is, is a, a building of new frontiers of capital accumulation. You know, this starts with natural resources back in the 80s and 90s, but now is pointed in different directions towards the data of Uyghurs themselves and, and others in the society, you know, harvesting that data and using it to build sort of new prediction products. And so here I'm thinking in, in parallel with the work of Shoshana Zuboff and, and her work on uh, surveillance capitalism in the U.S. context, um, how Google and other companies uh, harvest our data and use it to advertise to us, but also create new, new products, new frontiers of accumulation. Something similar happens. Here, Of course, it's really different in the sense that it's um, sort of a military policing operation. There's not a sort of consent structure yeah, on the part of the Uyghurs in terms of how they participate in this program. Another aspect of it, though, is, is uh, labor that's uh, coming out of this factory system and the removal of the laborers from their land, which makes their land available for um, sort of factory farming. So there's many ways in which uh, there's a, a logic to the system. It's not simply that Chinese people hate Muslims. Um, 
or the Chinese state um, is, you know, has it out for the Uyghurs. There's a, a lot of wealth in the Uyghur region that's important to the development of the nation. 85% of Chinese cotton comes from this region. 20% of Chinese oil and natural gas. It's a key zone on the Belt and Road Initiative going into Central and South Asia. Um, so for all of those reasons, it's really important to the Chinese state that they manage their sovereignty, they produce a, a control over the society and, and really gain access to all of those resources. So that's how I, I think about terror capitalism. The figure of the terrorist is important in all of this uh, because part of what justifies or motivates the logic of the system is, is finding these terrorists. What it does in the end is it produces an entire population of people you know, at scale who are potential terrorists. Um, and so their bodies, their land becomes the site of production of capital accumulation. So, you know, that's that's how I came to this term. And I'm not thinking that it, it happens in isolation. As I already said, it's it's something that I think is linked to other forms of capital accumulation that are you know, part of our global moment. I wanted to maybe drill down a bit and I wondered if you could map out or at least describe an ecosystem that seems to exist between you've got the Communist Party, you've got the security services, you mentioned the PSB, and then you have this nexus of private-ish, private companies working in the technology space. These are surveillance, these are data. Can you describe what this ecosystem looks like? Are these firms that are simply commercial enterprises looking for demand signals, and if the government pops up and said, we need cameras for this, they'll raise their hand and do it? Or I'm wondering, does this look something like, or does it have features of what we might think of as a traditional business lobby, where it is actively trying to shape what the government thinks it needs and wants, bend the curve in, in, in your direction? What do we know about what this kind of ecosystem or nexus of private firms and the security state looks like? Well, I think it's a combination, um, and it's also part of the, our particular moment or the particular moment of the tech industry and sort of breakthroughs in AI, um, machine learning technology, computer vision. So if we start at the top level in terms of the, the tech system in Xinjiang, uh, we really have to think about the China Electronics Technology Corporation, which is a, you know, it's a traditional Donway. It's a, it's a um, state-owned enterprise, um, a military and policing contractor that has lots of different components across the country and is also the parent company of, of Hike Vision or Hick Vision, um, one of the world's largest camera manufacturers. CETC is in charge of the Integrated Joint Operations Platform, which is this uh, database that integrates all the different kinds of data flows that are in operation in Xinjiang. It you know, provides the internet uh, interfaces that state workers from Civil Affairs Ministry to PSB um, are using and helps them to assess people in real time, making people searchable in real time. And so, you know, that system, I think, is something that the state really wanted and, you know, asked CETC to do. At the same time, though, the companies like Hikvision or other AI startups that are doing face recognition or data valence, which is, you know, scanning tools that will go through people's um, digital history, you know, those things were just coming on board in 2015 as people, uh, as these companies were uh, beginning to develop their algorithms and really building that capacity. And I think for those companies, having access to state data is really important uh, because it's such a, it's a much larger data set. It gives them you know, access to all of the ID images, all the different data flows that the state is already harvesting. Um, and so it, it gives them a space to experiment and develop new technologies that they wouldn't be able to do if they're working 
happening simply in the private sphere. And so as a, as a private tech company, it's really important to you that you find a way to get access to state data because it will help you to really accelerate your development and your sort of market share. And the, the economist William Young at, at Harvard has shown this, um, looking at face recognition startups that within two years, those that work with the state develop commercial applications. And so there's a, a really direct correlation between access to state data and um, private uh, development. The largest firms in Xinjiang are um, mostly, uh, you know, the ones that are working and have the largest contracts are those that are, are often categorized as national champions and are framed by the state as, as competitors to Silicon Valley mega corporations like Google or Facebook. Um, and so it's, it's actually part of China's national development strategy, I think, to, to involve them in, in operations like Xinjiang to accelerate the development of AI tools within the Chinese economy. What is the central local relationship on thinking about security strategies on Xinjiang look like? You know, in other areas, we see that what oftentimes can look in the outside as if it's Beijing, you know, sitting in the mothership, turning dials, and is actually, when you look at it more closely, is a lot of local level autonomy with some broad course correction signals that occasionally come from Beijing. That could be a speech that's given by Beijing, which sets the right tone or recalibrates the approach, or we have five-year planning documents. I know this is going to be hard to condense because, as you said at the outset of our discussion, broad approach in Xinjiang is multifaceted and you can't sort of essentialize it down to one thing. That being said, I'm going to ask you to essentialize this down. What is the dynamic between local-level autonomy, between the PSB, some of these other commercial act actors you've talked about, and, and Beijing? Does Beijing kind of set the broad signals and then basically wait to see results and then course correct either through swapping out leadership at XPCC or uh, a party secretary? Or is it, do we think they're more actively engaged in this? Well, certainly Xi Jinping and other central leaders in the Xinjiang Communist Party set the tone and signal that this is that the campaign is, is happening. You beginning already in 2014, People's War on Terror was declared. Then there was the, the counterterrorism law, which was implemented at the beginning of 2017. But in terms of like what that meant on the ground, I think there was still a lot of wiggle room. And I think we do see a kind of disaggregated approach uh, with you know regional actors at the prefecture level um, sort of competing against each other as sort of models of how to carry out the campaign. Um, there's an incentive structure there to meet the quotas, to show that you're you know, doing the work that you've you know, found the most terrorist, that sort of thing, um, that is driving some of this. And I think the state was probably underprepared in terms of how many, how many people were actually detained and what capacity would be necessary to provide humane housing for that many detainees. And so I think you know, over time, there's that, there is a kind of course correction with more formal facilities being built, with many of them being turned into prisons. I'm not sure exactly how that discussion happened, uh, who, who made that choice, um, but it, it happened over time. So, yeah, I think it's similar to the development dynamics we see elsewhere in China, um, that there's a kind of trying it out as you go um, and uh, competition between different actors on the ground. It's just a follow-up on this is the feedback loop between, and it, I use these words somewhat inadvisedly, but sort of innovations in security that are being developed in Xinjiang and where they, and, and vice versa, other innovations that occur in other areas that feed back into Xinjiang. Is this a fairly porous movement of best practices, technology utilizations, security strategies? You know, you see this every now and again where it's like, 
the column in the New York Times. It was something like, you know, Shanghai gets Xinjiang'd, which I always hate those. I know those are always cringeworthy, but I think the essence of what they're saying is this might not be as isolated as one thinks just in Xinjiang, but I'm actually wondering which way the which way the feedback goes. Is it actually Xinjiang exporting or is it Xinjiang importing or, or, or both? I think it goes in both directions. So, you know, at the outset of the Xinjiang campaign, the surveillance capacity um, and control mechanisms in places like Shanghai and Beijing were actually quite more advanced than they were in Xinjiang. But then we see Xinjiang really kind of taking the lead with all the state investment, state capital investment in, in, in developing this security infrastructure um, and, and using grid style policing to begin to lock down certain areas to prevent people from moving in this flexible way, even scanning people's phones and, you know, having a three color coded evaluation of the person of the phone carrier as trustworthy, untrustworthy and normal. That's something we see playing out in a different way in relation to, to COVID um, and COVID restrictions and controlling movement. It's the Shachu and PSB working together across the entire country to you know, quarantine certain areas. I can't say that Xinjiang is you know, what informed that COVID response necessarily, but certainly the technological capacity that was built in Xinjiang has a number of different adaptations when it comes to governance elsewhere, um, when it comes to, to commercial applications elsewhere. And so it's, it's, it's part of the ecosystem and there's, you know, constant sort of feeding back and forth between Xinjiang and the rest of the country. Final question, uh, and I think maybe expanding on the last one in terms of transmission flows of events and information and how those affect local level strategies. How have external events uh, affected Beijing's thinking and approach to, to Xinjiang? And I'm, I'm thinking uh, about more recently the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I imagine for all the tut-tutting in Beijing about how that demonstrated yet again the glorious defeat of the paper tiger must have provoked some uncertainty and anxiety for Beijing because it had the United States essentially helping buttress its western border. Have we seen, for example, since the ignominious withdrawal of the United States from, from Afghanistan, has that had any effect show up in terms of Beijing's approach to Xinjiang or is it too, too soon to tell? It's a bit too soon to tell. It's hard to know if the, the shift towards development again and towards you know, building the Belt and Road is a response to Afghanistan. It, it could be in some ways. Um, we know that already in Pakistan and in uh, Tajikistan, on both sides of, of Afghanistan, uh, China has a really significant presence building safe city systems, helping in, in securitization efforts there. Um, and I think they will likely want to do the same in Afghanistan going forward. But at the same time, they're really concerned about uh, kind of overextending themselves. One of the things they talked about in relation to Xinjiang was that it was a kind of anti-Libya or anti-Syria. It was preventing Xinjiang from becoming like Libya or Syria. And what they were saying in relation to Libya was they were thinking about the, the mass evacuation of you know, 30,000 migrant workers, Chinese migrant workers from Libya as it descended into civil war in the early 2010s. And uh, the chaos of, of that moment um, and wanting to prevent that kind of chaos from happening again. In, in the campaign in Xinjiang, um, they were showing films um, that, that mirror or you know, fictionalize and, and represent what happened in Libya um, and, and elsewhere. Um, films like Wolf Warrior 2, 
to uh, Uyghur um, you know, people in their communities um, as a way of like, showing like this is what could happen if we didn't step in and, and this is our role um, as um, kind of a new police officer in the world. But I think there's a cautionary tale that's buried in that, that they, they don't want to um, get into a space where they, they don't have um, the ability to really protect themselves. And so it's, I think, too soon to tell you know, what, what that means for Afghanistan. To listeners, I, I, I scratched one one thousandth of the surface of Darren's two books. So I want to recommend that anyone who enjoyed Darren's insights today go out and purchase his, his two recent books. Uh, the book on China as a high-tech penal colony, for those of you who already have a, a very long reading list, I will say is an incredibly accessible, fairly swift but insightful read so if you're already very busy, I might put that at the top of your list. But of course, those who want to dig in deeper, I just found terror capitalism incredibly illuminating and, and thought-provoking, in large part because I think Darren challenged the way that I conceptualize some of these state commercial networks as being contained within China. And I think Darren challenges that and I think um, certainly made me think about these as, as much more of a broader phenomenon of which the outside world is very much a part of, even if we would like to think that this is something that is only China's doing, it's quite clear that, that external actors are a critical component of the atrocities that are occurring in Xinjiang. So can't recommend Darren's work enough. And final, for those who are familiar with the our Interpret China project at CSIS, just to flag that Darren and I are doing a very small, uh, very tiny collaboration, but one that I'm nonetheless honored to be uh, participating when Darren has helped facilitate uh, some documents that we have translated and will be putting out with some short commentaries, hopefully by Darren and some others on the Interpret China website. So please uh, recommend that folks be watching the Interpret China website uh, over the next few weeks as we as we hope to get those out. So Darren, thank you very much for, for first of all, just your consistent voice on this issue and you and, a, and just a very small handful of others have really been the conscience on, on these issues and have kept them in the, in the attention span of uh, attention-deficited capitals around the world. Uh, but also, I, I, beyond that, just as scholarly contributions to anyone trying to understand China as a political system and how it operates, uh, uh, you can't focus on China's political system, X Xinjiang, and hope to understand China's political system. So Darren's work, I think, has been it is essential for anyone who is just a student of trying to understand China's political system, qua political system. So um, thank you for your time, Darren, and thank you for your insights and thank you for your scholarship. Well, thanks so much for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 